Sonic Boom! Hello, everybody. Welcome to OK Sonic Boomer, the podcast where Mr. Corey Bell joins me here to talk about old school fighting game stuff so he can ask me questions from the very uh, younger person's point of view, I guess we can call it. How you doing, Corey? I'm doing great, James. Thank you so much for having me again. Uh, uh, it's, it's been a long time no see. Sorry, yeah. I've been busy. I just want to say... Hours Has everyone messed up? I just want to say, by the way, apparently, and this was not planned at all, but uh, OK Sonic Boomer is brought to you by Wendy's. Because <laughs> I've got the Wendy's cup here, and look at Corey's shirt. Uh, wow. Wendy's, please, give me my spicy nuggets. Sponsor us, please. There I, you I, go. I will shill your junior Baconators every day. <laughs> I guess we were sponsored by Wendy's this whole time. but uh, never knew. Uh, how, how's everything going for you right now during these quarantine times? Uh, it's, 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 it's things aren't going too badly. Honestly, the only thing is my sleep schedule is completely messed up. Because, you know, we, I don't have a regular routine of things I need to be doing at specific times anymore. Like, I don't need to go to work at a specific yeah. time. It's just like, I'm, like, uh, j just just so people know, like, I, you know, I, my, my method of income during this time is I'm basically just like, yeah, I will either go do gigs like, you know, Postmates or something, or I will, you know, I'll just go play in a tournament and hope I win money or something like that. <laughs> oh, so, so, so um, the good news, it's not, it's not like I'm in a situation where I'm like, I need the money or something like okay, that. Like, okay. that's not the point. So as a result, though, <laughs> I don't, I, I'm not really, like, forced to be like, I need to work right this okay, minute or okay. I need to work at this specific time. I just work when I feel like it, so... My sleep schedule is completely messed up. Oh, yeah. I mean, my sleep schedule was maintained by my brother before because I would meet him for lunch. And that was Ooh. at 11 o'clock. So that would always force me up at, like, at least 1030. And uh, since now he doesn't go to work and he works from home, he doesn't wake me up in the morning now. So now my sleep schedule is just complete garbage. So <laughs> uh, it, it happens. And... How uh, how I've uh, adapted to it is just the thought process of you know what if I don't have if no one needs me to do anything at a specific time or I'm not ex uh, expected to do something at a specific time I shouldn't feel guilty about sleeping in. Dude, I see you writing tweets like, "What should I stream right now at like 5 a.m. or something?" <laughs> yeah, this it happens. It's like you know what I'm bored. It is four in the morning. I'm not sleepy because I woke up at like 2 p.m. So what am I going to do for the rest of the night? Oh, man. All right, enough of this. Let's, let's, let's talk about some old stuff here. And again, if people aren't familiar with the format of the show, Corey, like I said, very young member of the fighting game community, but loves the history. And uh, I just kind of let him come up with topics for me to talk about because I have so much information in my head. I never know the proper way to get it out. And so I'll, I'll let Corey kind of uh, guide it through. At some point in time, I'm, I'm sure we'll also try to get some guests on here so we can bring in someone like an Arturo Sanchez or a Henry Sen or, you know, to talk about a lot of the other areas and stuff. So uh, keep, keep, keep uh, 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 an ear to the ground, I guess, uh, for those episodes coming in the future. So. Yeah, we, we still need, uh, in my opinion, we still need uh, the opinions of... Or the the uh, insight of people 
from other regions. Yes. You know, get 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 there a good idea of what things like over there. Especially, I really want to hear about New York. I really really yeah. want to hear about what the New York mm-hmm, scene was mm-hmm, like. Mm-hmm. Um. Because, you know, obviously I'm, I'm a Californian, so I only really get to hear the perspective of people who live in California, yeah. um, which isn't a bad thing. California has an amazing arcade FGC history. It's just mm-hmm. that, as anyone could tell you, West Coast and East Coast are very different, <laughs> so I want to know. Yes, just a little different. <laughs> um, so slightly, very slightly on topic, but when uh, I was actually looking at the older videos you put on YouTube for mm-hmm. the OK Sonic Boomer, because I need a refresher course. I'm like, OK, what did we last talk about? Right. What are the things we've already covered? Uh, someone in the comments mentioned how things were in the Illinois Chicago scene. Oh, OK. Yeah, and so one thing they were talking about is that, so for people who don't know, Illinois, you know, not only Chicago, like an even established FG scene now, but back in the day, I believe that was where the headquarters of Midway was. Mm-hmm, so they had mm-hmm. a huge, like, MK scene. Yeah, yeah. And, but the one thing they were saying in the comments was basically, like, they only had, like, a handful of major arcades, or maybe, like, maybe, like, one real major arcade, which was, I guess, Friar Tux. And so they were, th- this person who was commenting, was really amazed by the fact that there was cross arcade or cross venue uh, rivalry oh. in California. <laughs> right. Okay. Okay. Because in in, in uh, apparently in Chicago it was very, um, it, it was pretty much everyone met at the same arcade and played at the same one as opposed to having a bunch where everyone played. Gotcha, gotcha. Yeah, I mean, what's what's interesting about it was I wouldn't necessarily say that there was like rivalries, rivalries like oh, those those there's those players at this arcade and there's these players at this arcade and we're gonna go beat them this time in our nicely organized event, you know, like no, like none of that actually happened. Really, honestly, the the, the arcade rivalries kind of just manifested itself as hey, we think we're the best at this arcade. And if anybody showed up, we wanted to beat them. And if we ever traveled anywhere else, we wanted to beat those guys. And, you know, if it ever escalated, like you go to someplace and they beat you and they're like, uh, and, but you're not the best at your arcade. You kind of want to sneakily send one of your best guys to their arcade and kind of beat them down, basically, just to prove that your arcade is the best kind of thing. You know, like I said, nothing was v- properly organized as much back then. Uh, mm. The most organized stuff probably really did come from the uh, Pico Rivera tournaments, the world's finest arcade, uh, uh, the world's finest comic shop, I'm, supp- I'm sorry, uh, that started doing those official events where Tomo and all those guys were. But, I mean, let's put it this way. The, the arcade, the Laser Blast arcade that I mentioned where I first played Street Fighter II, uh, their first Street Fighter II tournament was run by myself, my brother, and one of our friends. Like, we just ran it there and tried to get everybody to show up and, you know, we were going to try to beat everybody and everything like that, but it just wasn't even really that organized, you know? It's, it's, that's just the hardest part to, to, to grasp, I think, nowadays for people is because there was no internet, there was no cell phones, people weren't texting each other. Communication was very hard back then. <laughs> yeah, unless you had someone's number or something, right? Mm-hmm. And so there wasn't any like, hey, let's get, hey, go to your message board or your Discord. Hey, guys, at this arcade, there's these guys. Let's go beat them up. You know, like, (laughs) this stuff doesn't actually 
that just didn't really happen. So it was, it's a very disjointed world. It's a very disjointed world that Street Fighter II was brought into. And it was very hard to organize kind of events and things like that. I mean, the only reason why I knew about the world's finest comics stories, and I know we mentioned this in the last episode, I talked about like, you know, ask me what my Tomo story is. Uh, but, you know, it was because Tomo and all the world's finest guys went out and drove all around Southern California to every arcade they could find and uh, passed out flyers. <laughs> they passed out flyers? Yeah, they passed. In fact, God, you know what? I'd have to go and look for it. But I may still actually have the very first flyer that Tomo passed out to us at that arcade. Because I remember, because I'm a pack rat, I keep things for souvenir sake and stuff. And I swear, I, I, I feel like I might know where that is. And uh, I might have to go and look for it because that would be a relic. That would be a relic that, right there. That, would, that belongs in a museum, okay? Whoa. <laughs> Yeah. Wow, that that's so cool. Do you still have that? Maybe, maybe. Don't I mean like I can't fifty percent chance because yes, I'm a hoarder. In fact, I've like in my process of trying to clean my home is hard because I hoard everything. Oh, it's it's rough. <laughs> no, but if you if you ever end up finding that, because I, I imagine that's gonna be a project in its own yeah. in, in of itself to find it. Yeah. But if you ever find it. I, I would love to see it. Yeah, I, I know. A lot of people would love to see it. <laughs> I'll try to see if I can find it. Because if it's not here somewhere in my house, it'll be in my parents' house. And I'll have to go so, way out there and try to find it and, and try to even think where it might be or something. So, oh, man. Yeah, if I can find it, Starks, I would probably try to get it laminated or something because... Uh, it would be crazy. I mean, that was an event that I, that probably even before Mike Watson went to, it was literally the third world's finest tournament that they had ever run. And so that was before a lot of the strongest players went there. What, what, what game was that for? Was that for World, world Warrior? Warrior? Just World Warrior, yeah. I mean, so this is before like even Turbo anything came out. Oh yeah, yeah. I mean, if you want, I mean, I can tell the story. I've told the story in interviews before, but I can just repeat the whole thing here because a lot of people here aren't not going to have heard this. Please, please do. I would love to hear. <laughs> Basically, the way that I discovered Greater Street Fighter was yeah, we had the, our arcade. So just know that our arcade was called Laser Blast. Is where I played. It was me and my brother. It was uh, one of our friends named Chan, and his little brother named Ka, who we all called Squeaky. Okay, we just called him Squeaky because every time he talked, he would, ah! you know, he, his voice would like kind of break a little bit. So we just called him yeah, Squeaky. Yeah, squeaky voice. Yeah. Yes. And so it was basically the four of us and a couple of other people. There was uh, Mary, who was the worker who worked there, and you know, a few other regulars that showed up. One of them was a guy named Marco who actually uh, I still was friends with. He's, I think he might still even still work at the company that I was just at, you know, and everything. So I've known him for a long time, uh, Marco Alvarado. And we would all play at this arcade all the time. And we thought we were kind of the best, right? We were like, we're super good. We're really good and everything like that. And there's just one random day while we were all at the arcade. Chan wasn't there at the arcade. But it was like me and my brother, Mary was there, and a bunch of other people we're there, and these two random dudes just walk into the arcade, and we're like, 
who the heck are these guys, okay? We've never seen them. And they come and they play Street Fighter. And this is when tick throwing became very popular. So this was when basically people would do jump roundhouse, walk up and throw. And this is, and, and we were in an arcade where we actually didn't complain about throwing. We just accepted it and we tried to learn how to play around it. But tick throws were the in thing at the time. And so these two Ooh. random guys just show up to the arcade and they start playing and they do jump around house and they start walking at us. And so we try to reversal our throw and then they swept us because we would be standing up and trying to throw them, right? Tick throws, if you don't remember, are just make the opponent block and then run up and throw them as soon as they come out of block stun. Mm -hmm. But these guys did jump roundhouse, walk up and sweep, okay? And it was funny because they were doing this to us and we get hit by the sweep every time. And while I'm sitting there playing, I would block this jump attack, they would run up to me and he would sweep me. And I literally yelled towards my brother, I'm like, I know they're going to sweep, but my hand keeps making me stand up. Like, you know, it was just muscle memory. It was habit. I was like, what is happening over here? Like, I couldn't do it. And they just basically destroyed us. And they just like, they destroyed us in ways that we hadn't seen before. And, you know, this is how low level we all were. Like, so that we were slaves to the muscle memory. You know, we couldn't <laughs> stay crouching. It was just, that was our reaction to it. And then finally, after the guys beat us down and everything like that, we were like, where are you guys from? Where do you play at? And they're like, oh, we're traveling all around California to advertise this world's finest comic tournament in Pico Rivera. And it turned out to be Tomo Ohira and Tony Tsui, two of the four grandmasters of the tournament. And they were spreading the, the, the information around everywhere. And we were just like, we thought we were good at this game and you guys just completely mopped us up. And they looked at us and, and this was probably the one of the greatest compliments that I've ever gotten. They're like, honestly, you're some of the better people we've played. <laughs> And they destroyed us, but they were like, honestly, you guys like were some of the better people we played. <laughs> and we were like, what? And so uh, at this point in time, you know, my brother was going to college. Uh, but the funny thing about it is that, um, you know, my brother and I, you know, we're Asian. Our parents didn't let us go into random places and stuff like that. So we begged our mom to go to this tournament. You know, and when when my mom was like, yeah, sure, whatever, go ahead, because you guys never get into trouble. I even remember <laughs> driving there, listening to the Street Fighter 2 soundtrack, like, remix CD that my brother had or something. Well, I think it was on tape. And we went there, and we went to the comic book shop, and uh, we walked in, and it's super small. There's only, like, two, two or three cabinets, maybe two cabinets total. But, like, uh, I always made this reference, but uh, for those of you who have watched James Bond movies, you know, there's always that one section where you walk into Q's lab and he has all the gadgets, like the flamethrower or, like, the, the, the hat that shoots a blade or something, like, you know, uh -huh, uh -huh. You, and you're just walking in the background, you see all this crazy stuff happening, but nobody's reacting to it. That's how me and my brother felt when we showed up at the comic book shop. Like, we would see people doing things, and we were like, what the hell? Like, this is a thing? Like, I still remember one of my memories at that particular day was uh, Chun-Li running up to Guile, and he said, Sonic Boom, and he started throwing a Sonic Boom, and the Chun-Li fierce punched him in the face before the Sonic Boom came out, and we were like, what the hell? You can do that? And then we also saw... 
Hadouken Sonic Boom backfist into the face, you know, during Ryu's recovery. And we were like, that is so sick. Oh my God, that's so good. Like, these were all things we hadn't seen before. And for us, it was just like mind blowing. And for all these players there, they're all like, you know, this is just what we do. And it was the wildest thing. And it, I was just like, oh my, me and my brother didn't enter. We just watched because we just wanted to see what the heck was going on there. But it was crazy. And, and you know what? It might have been where my low-tier hero-ness came from, to be honest with you. Because they had little boards on the top of all their bookshelves that had, like, the top eight Ryus, the top eight Kens, the top eight Giles, the top eight. And all of the boards had lots of names on there except Honda. And uh, I liked playing Honda at the time, and I was like, oh, nobody plays Honda, huh? I'm, I'm going to double down and try to be one of the best Hondas now, you know? And the second time I actually went to Pico Rivera, uh, just as an FYI, I did play in the tournament, and I used Honda, and I got bodied. You know, I, I don't remember what my record was at this point in time, but obviously I didn't make it particularly far. But, you know, mm. I just wanted to be one of the most well-known Honda players there, and Maybe that's the birth of the 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 Honda the low tier hero ness. So, man, there, there's so much to unpack here because there's, there's like so <laughs> many things I wanted to ask about. Um, so first off, obviously, as as you're mentioning earlier, this is pre-internet era. So just just really really understanding the idea, like, oh, damn, back in the day, like, unless you you know had the phone numbers of like say like all the mm -hmm. arcade operators or whatever you would have to go out of your way to visit all the top <laughs> arcades or whatever and hand out flyers mm -hmm. in order to advertise your competition or event or whatever. And that, for me, sounds mind-blowing. <laughs> and, and you know what makes it even crazier? They probably found all the arcades through the Yellow Pages. <laughs> there was no Yelp or Google Maps, okay? <laughs> they probably just Yellow Paged their way through everything. That is just nuts. Yeah. And so that's the other thing. Just imagine, you know, because not every, uh, you're, you're not going to know what the listing of games are mm -hmm. or at an arcade or like how popular they are. So sometimes you'd imagine they may, might have driven to an arcade that either had no players or had no Street Fighter 2. Or like, oh, well, that's a bust. <laughs> and yep. go to the next one. Yep. And uh, they did it, though, because their goal and, you know, part of uh, their goal and also the guy who owned the comic book shop was really to try to prove that Tomo was the best player. You know, even though there was a bunch of other people who could fight him and were really good, Tomo was just at another level. And, and you know, going back to the Tomo stories, uh, I remember watching him play Street Fighter Two in the tournament. We were watching the tournament matches. And remember, uppercuts didn't knock down. In Street Fighter 2 World Warrior, okay? If I uppercutted you and you were standing, you stayed standing, okay? I did not know that. So Fierce Uppercut was punishable on hit. They were designed only to be anti-airs. They were literally designed to be anti-airs. So hitting people on the ground with an uppercut was dangerous. And I still remember watching Tomo play against the Chun-Li. And I remember the games were much slower back then, very slow. But he Not fought against the Chun-Li, and every time Chun-Li did crouching medium kick, he would uppercut her leg with the jab uppercut. But it would be far Our away reaction? enough. Yeah, every time. She would, like, low forward, and he would uppercut the leg. And she would be far away enough that she couldn't punish the uppercut. And then... But on reaction. Th that's what it looked like to me. And, and if she didn't crouching medium kick, he wouldn't uppercut. Now, 
what we realize nowadays is he was probably just doing the uppercut motion and waiting to see a crouching medium kick and then hitting light punch. So he was probably buffering the motion ahead of time. For me at the time, it just looked like he was magical, right? It was just like, this doesn't make any sense at all. Nowadays, I can probably process it, especially because the Chun-Li probably wasn't very good and was poking at very obvious times. And like I said, he was doing the buffering technique. But to even be able to do that so early in Street Fighter II's career showed that they were already doing a lot of the high-level stuff that we are naming and talking about now. Because like we can call them OSs and with punishes and all this stuff like that, but... Back then, they didn't have a name. It was just the trick. You know, it was the thing mm. that they did. And then in the tournament, I remember Tomo just like saying with the guy sitting next to him, because it's the arcade cabinet, he was the best guile player. And he was like, I'm going to beat this guy with only light kick. <laughs> and he did it. And he did it. He did it. Oh very easy. God. Very freezy. Very free, too. Didn't, didn't throw a sonic boom. He just beat him with light kick. Just flash kicked him and just annoyed him with standing light kick and crouching light kick, and he beat him. And uh, all of us were like, oh, my God. Like, so, I mean, for us, Tomo really became kind of that legend in those situations. And the reason why, I honestly think if he was a player today, he would be one of the best. He wouldn't be the best. He would be right up there. He would be up there with a... And in fact, a lot of Tomo, and, uh, you know, I'm a very genetic kind of believer kind of thing, you know? Uh, a lot of Tomo reminds me of Knuckle Do. I'm going to say that much right now. A lot of the way that Knuckle Do kind of thinks, plays, talks, reminds me a lot of how Tomo was uh, back then. I didn't know Tomo super well. I know Knuckle Do way more than I know Tomo. But from the casual... Uh, sound I feel like I, I've seen from Tomo because he was like super nice from all accounts of everybody that I said but he could also be a troll which is like right up knuckle do right that's like that's that is knuckle do right there so uh a lot about him was very similar but I really do feel like he would have been one of the best because he was so far ahead of everybody uh Gerald the guy who runs the Okamoto kitchen truck likes to tell the story that um uh, at one Capcom actual sponsored tournament in Northern California, you know, it was like a two-part tournament. They all played Street Fighter 2. I forget which version it was, but then they played the Street Fighter pinball machine that just came out, you know, like as a promotion kind of thing. Okay. And it was the first time anybody had ever seen the pinball game. And uh, according to Gerald, who was there, he said uh, Tomo who doesn't really play pinball, basically, like, almost flipped the score or something like that. Like, he would not, like, he just was so good at it. He just had this weird natural talent to be amazing at fighting games, you know. And, 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 and again, I, I hold Gerald's opinion to this very uh, dearly because... Uh, and kind of swerving from the story a little. A lot of people don't know. Gerald Abraham, L.A. Akira, he's been on the Tuesday show to, to talk about the old times, about like Tragic the Gathering and all these things like that. We did a lot of history stuff with him. A lot of people don't know. He's the guy who runs the Okamoto Kitchen Truck. One of the reasons why I support it so much because he's one of the OG fighting game guys that I've known for over 20 years, right? And the food is ridiculous. Food um, is great. But... He played with Tomo. He was one of those guys who could never beat Tomo. <laughs> well, he could fight him, obviously, but Tomo would win the majority of the games. He was one of the guys who played with Watson all the time back in the days. He's actually legitimately, I think, the first 
trans-Pacific player that we know of going from U.S. to Japan to actually play against Japanese players. He Really? Yeah, he went into Japan during Champion Edition time. And because Champion Edition was the first arcade Street Fighter that let you play mirror matches, the official tournament that they had in Japan was that there were 12 separate tournaments for each character. So there was the Ryu tournament, the Ken tournament, the Honda tournament, and everybody who entered could only use that character. And then they got the best person from that group to all play in the final tournament, essentially. So they tried oh, to get... So one, one, of, one for each of the characters. Basically. Yeah. I, that's I think, cool as hell. That I, sounds really fun. I think that's how they set it up. And so when Gerald went there, his best character was not Ken, but Ken was the only one that had an opening that he could still get in there. And he said he got like third place or something. And, wow. And he said that the players that he played in a lot of the arcades and everything like that were not as good as Tomo. Now, obviously, you know, there's going to be bias because obviously USA, let's go, you know, like, so there's obviously going to be bias and we might not have seen who the strongest Japanese players actually were. Maybe they didn't play in that actual tournament or whatever like that, but... From what Gerald says, he says the level of play in the U.S. was he felt better, which to me probably means was on par with the play quality in Japan at the time. And like I said, people don't realize that back in the Street Fighter 2 days, everybody played this game and it was played everywhere. So the number of people playing was large enough that, and the character count was small enough and the games were simple enough that yes, even here we could maximize a lot of the strategies and get to that point where we were probably on par with some of the best in the world, you know? I so. Mean, so, so, but that, that proves basically at the very least that Tomo was an international, world-class player. Yes, yeah, exactly, exactly. Would he have won had he gone to Japan? Who knows? We'll never know. Was he the best player at the time? We've had, uh, I've had arguments with uh, some of the old uh, OG players who live in Japan right now. There was that little mini documentary that was put out about like the best fighting game, the best Street Fighter player in the world that nobody knows about right now. And it was a little mini documentary about Tomo that came out on the internet. And uh, uh, shout-outs to uh, XSPR. Uh, he, like, talks to me all the time about that. And he's like, that's slanderous. You know, he's not the best player. The best players are in Japan. He's gone with Gerald. Like, him and Gerald have argued with each other about this forever. And this is, like, in the past two years. You know, like, we can never know. We'll never be able to tell. And my whole belief is that was it wrong calling Tomo the best player in the world at the time? No. Was it right calling him that? You know, no. <laughs> but is it fair just saying that for the sake of having a, a cool little documentary? I think so. You know, like, yeah. he, he was definitely up there. And we'll never know who was the better player in the end. But I think it's safe to say that we were all on the uh, same level, at it's, least. It's one of those things where no one knows for sure, and probably no one ever will, but it's very much plausible. <laughs> yeah. It's a plausible, plausible mm -hmm. choice. Mm -hmm. Exactly, exactly. So, but I mean, that that's just kind of all leading towards the, the whole idea that I really do feel like 
Tomo was very far ahead of his time and was doing a lot of things that we didn't know about doing and he had figured it out in like year one. You know, I mean, that's how talented some of these guys were. Uh, I always forget the name of all the three guys. It was Tomo Ohira was number one. There was Tony Tsui, there was Roger Chung, and there's always the fourth one that I never remember. I don't remember if it was, uh, was it Vahe or? There was four, there was the four uh, basically top players that they always seated apart from each other in the brackets. Four Davis, dude. Yeah. Davis. <laughs> Essentially, and, uh, but Tomo would almost win every one of those world's finest tournaments almost all the time. And like I said, uh, Pretty soon after, I mean, maybe he was there at that event that I was at. I don't know. Maybe a young Jeff Schaefer was there. Uh, Mike Watson eventually started going there and being one of the best players at that event as well. But World's Finest is where most of the best players were bred. And uh, like I said, the guy who owned the comic book shop became Tomo's manager. They tried to do a bunch of stuff. He was kind of how they got Tomo to do that really cheesy hyper fighting video I'm sure you've seen on YouTube before. I have. <laughs> with the dude with the cap, you know, hey, Tomo, you're well, Tomo, well, well, you know. Was, was that like to teach people how to play like on the SNES or something like that? Yeah, like, it was, it was uh, the I, I remember thinking it was a Super Nintendo guide or something like mm -hmm, that. Like, mm -hmm. It was the advertise and try to help people get better for the hyper fighting on Super Nintendo. <laughs> Just imagine like, no, no, no offense, but like back in the day just how to the casual audience right because you know esports are definitely not a thing like it's you know none of the comp like esports or like e-competition type stuff was mainstream at all mm -hmm. so how the casual audience might see me like god that's so cheesy what who goes to who goes to tournaments for video games <laughs> you know what, well what, what do you mean this guy's one of the best players of street fighter who cares yeah i mean yeah Back then, if you told someone was the, like I said, video games were a lot of uh, one player stuff and it was about high score most of the time. Even today, we have people think that fighting games are button mashy. And so back then, you can imagine people would probably just be like, I mean, can you even get good at a video game like that? Like, does it even matter? And video games were the devil back then. I mean, that, that was during the time period where, you know, uh, you know, this was before Mortal Kombat, of course, but Mortal Kombat exacerbated the situation. But video games were seen as the devil. Like, they took you away from homework. The Nintendo was really popular and eating up a lot of kids' times. Turns your brain to mush. Turns your brain to mush. They were violent. They, you know, that was when video games promote hand-eye coordination was at the all-time high. Have you heard that before? Video games? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. The thing is, I, I was actually just going to touch upon this very slightly. Just saying, like, dude, before esports, like, really took off, I'd say all the way up until esports actually took off, video games were still the devil. Yep. Yep. And, uh, but that was our argument as kids. You, that was the only thing you could ever say was that video games improved hand-eye coordination. Because that was all we really had at the time to, to, to say. And it was like absolutely the core. Like you talk to anyone my age, they will remember the time that they probably told someone that video games improve hand-eye coordination. Because that was like the only thing that we could try to say that was positive about it. <laughs> so so uh, obviously my like j just... Just get the funny story. So my, my mother's Japanese. So I had a Japanese, you know, parent 
And my mother would joke all the time as a kid, like, man, when you were born, you had these really nice long fingers. I thought you were going to go into classical music, you know, learn how to play an instrument, <laughs> and instead you are just playing video games. I didn't think you'd get these hands to play video games. <laughs> oh, that's funny. <laughs> I mean, look, the reason why I feel like I've always been willing to practice the same thing over and over and again and have the mental drive to learn fighting games is because I did learn the piano when I was a kid. You know, learning an instrument tells, teaches you to do the repetition, to, to have that kind of uh, situation where you could do the drills. same thing a hundred times in a row. Yeah, you got to have those drills. You got you to gotta drill that into your, mm -hmm. uh, your muscle memory. And yeah, it's, it's just being forced to practice. Honestly, if you had any sort of diligent hobby or upbringing, like you played an instrument or you played a sport, you know, fighting games are going to be similar in that aspect of, hey, you got to just put in the work and the results will show. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, you know, eventually, uh, that little arcade that we had playing there, um, we met a bunch of people there. Oh, God, I feel so bad. There's one player there who disappeared from the scene because he joined uh, the Navy, I want to say it was, or, or he joined the military at one point. Oh, I feel so bad because he was one of my favorite like friends that we used to play fighting games with at Laser Blast Arcade. Uh, but you know, it started growing into a group of people that would go and play regularly and then it turned out one of our friends had a Champion Edition cabinet in his house, like his parents just bought it for him. And our friend who went to the military told us about it and drove us there and we eventually met that guy and that guy's name was Roger. And so we would play like Champion Edition over there at his, well actually we didn't show up we found out about it right during the transition between Champion Edition and Hyper Fighting, and uh, he got a Hyper Fighting chip and that's when we started going there and uh, playing with him. So it was me and my brother Chan. Uh, remember I talked to you about last time about the guy who would always string the arcade machines and stuff like that? Uh, yeah, how he had another TV he put on top of the cabinet. Well, no, I mean the guy who would string the corn coin to get him give himself free credits. Who, oh, the string. The yeah, string. yeah, yeah, yeah. Stream. No, no, no. The, the 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 string, and he would get the and he got like the pong combat and all that stuff. He was a guy named Eric. He would show up at the house all the time too. And it's where I became good friends with Eric. And we all used to go there and play hyper fighting forever. And it was funny because even though my sleep schedule is messed up now, back then I was an early sleeper and we would go visit at like, like 5 p.m. And then we would sit there and play hyper fighting until 11 and we would be like, we're tired, we're going to go now. But then everybody else would stay there until like 5 in the morning and just sit there and play all day, dude. It was, it was crazy. And then Roger would go to sleep wake up because we'd call him and he'd come back up and we'd all play again. And he just basically played all year round, all day round. And that's kind of where I learned how to get a lot better at fighting games was having that kind of ability to grind with those guys. And, you know, uh, Roger, Eric, uh, those names you'll see on the, on the, um, on that leaderboard on the Tomo interview in that one strategy guide. You've seen the hyper fighting strategy guide before, right? Hang on. I, I think I have it upstairs right here so I can grab it right away. I was gonna say, I, I don't recall the hyper fighting strategy guide. Cause I pulled guide. this out on stream a long time ago. So this is the old hyper fighting strategy guide here. This is for oh. when, when it came out on the Super Nintendo. It had the first preview of Super Street Fighter 
2 in the arcades with like, check out this new character, T-Hawk, here's all his normal moves and all these things I like that. I Tony Hawk. Yeah, so the first time we saw this, this was a GamePro uh, publishment. And the first time we, this was the first glance that me, that most people ever had to the CPS2 Street Fighter 2. And so we were like, oh my god. But at the very end of the thing was, you know, hey look, here's a little article about Street Fighter tournaments. And here's an interview with Tomo Ohira, right? And if you look at this interview with Tomo on this over here, what he's sitting next to is a leaderboard for Pico Rivera at the time. And if you look at this uh, leaderboard, number one is Tomo Ohira. Number two is Jeff Schaefer. Number three is Frank Quang, who uh, eventually went to UCLA, was also lived in San Diego for a while and would always use crouching fierce anti-air against the San Diego team. So the San Diego team deemed him the fathead Ryu. And so sometimes if you see people do a crouch fierce anti-air with Ryu and someone calls it a fathead Ryu, that's where that came from, from Frank. Uh, Kuni Funada, who was from Japan, who came to live in America, he was one of the best uh, Zangief players of all time from the beginning. Uh, long history in the fighting game community. <clears throat> Number five is Mike Watson. Number six is George Ngo, who was the guy at UCLA that I told the story of who wouldn't talk to me until I finally started beating him. And then he started becoming my friend and drove me around to playing all the arcades and stuff. Um, uh, Martin Vega, uh, a player who's shown up to Super Arcade, good friends with uh, uh, Mike Watson. Number eight is Eric Tetley, my friend who I was just talking about, the, the guy who, you know, was the quarter stringer. <laughs> uh, uh-huh. uh, nine was Vahe. Uh, 10 was Roger Chung, who was one of those guys. 11 was Roger Sahavo, the guy who had the cabinet in his house. Uh, 12 is Saunter Lee. Okay, this is a funny story. Uh, I was just playing Street Fighter V online recently, and I fought a birdie. And this birdie killed me, destroyed me, because he did things like wake up non-EX dolphin dive. <laughs> and, like, who does that? And I, like, <clears throat> died to him so badly because he played so random... And then the guy messaged me afterwards and was like, hey, is that you, James? It's me, Saunter. And I was like, what the hell? I was like, how can you be OG and actually play this crazy? I was like, what the hell? Like, what the hell happened to your fundamentals? I was so salty. He never wrote me back. But yeah, there he is. He's on this list as well. Saunter. (laughs) Holy crap. That Uh, is so funny. Jason McGlone is listed as here. People know him also as Jason Gonzalez, also known as APOC. I'm sure a lot of people know who APOC is. Uh, I'm familiar with the name. Yeah, one of the most uh, old school guys who uh, very much hates a lot of the modern fighting games. Um, uh, After that is Adolf Torres. He's a player I'm not as familiar with. James Cha, I'm not as familiar with. Ben Ketchum afterwards. Norm Ho, who eventually went to UCLA. James Romady, who was one of the best players who uh, lived in San Diego at the time. It was like him and Bob Painter uh, and a couple of other San Diego players who were some of the strongest. And then Mike Hernandez, who did show up again at one point in time and was playing uh, like Blanca in... 
CVS2 or something like that. He like showed up and started playing again and placing well at random Evos and stuff like that. And uh, yeah, but this is a whole little interview with Tomo talking about things. And, 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 and look at this picture of Tomo. Uh, if I can get this on stream properly, and do you see what I mean by genetics and how something about him reminds me of Knuckledoo? Can you kind of see that a little bit here? Like, obviously he's a completely different ethnicity. He's Filipino and, and Knuckledoo is a Vietnamese. But there's just something about, like, the smile, the body language, you know, and stuff like that. There's something about them that has this weird kind of, like, when I see one, I kind of see the other. A similar aura, personality. And, yeah. Yeah. It's weird. Well, maybe you're just racist, James. I don't know. Uh, <laughs> that? Oh, God, please don't go there now. <laughs> no, we're not going there. Not, 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 not right now in the current chapter of the FTC. Yeah, exactly. I'm uh, so sorry. That was not even a good joke. Uh, Casey anyway. Snipes asks, when did Vi become a name of SF and not Tomo? Tomo was retired by then. So by the time Super came out, which was very close after this, uh, Tomo left. He, he quit the FGC, and, well, I'm sorry, he stopped playing fighting games at the time. Uh, a lot of people say it's because he got a girlfriend, you know, that, that, was the, that was the fighting game career killer back then. When you found a girlfriend, that was just the end of it, because no girl wanted you to play video games at that time. That was just not even a thing. It was not cool at all. Yeah, and uh, he stopped playing around Super, and plus Super was slow again. And not a lot of people wanted to play that anymore. I, I can imagine. Like, so actually, a topic I do want to talk about now I think about it mm -hmm. was, so Super wasn't necessarily as beloved, especially going from Turbo to Super. <laughs> so was there a significant drop in player base of like, oh, we're going backwards. Yeah, never mind. I'm done. Yeah. Uh, super... I feel like killed a lot of the scene. Again, that's just from my perspective. I don't know how it feels around the country in a lot of different areas, but the game was slow again. And we had all just gotten used to hyper fighting and we much more enjoyed the higher speed pace. In fact, you could kind of tell uh, there was a, an arcade mini golf place called Castle Park in Southern California. And it's where a lot of people, you know, it's a franchise. There's a few Castle Parks here in California. Um, and, uh, it was like a rival to golf land, I guess you could call it. Uh, and basically there was two floors of the arcade at the castle park. And, uh, you could tell how unpopular super was because the top floor was always for the less popular games. The bottom floor was for the more popular games and hyper fighting was still on the bottom floor and super was on the top floor. Like it I just, it. it just didn't make any money. Nobody wanted to play it because it was just so slow all of a sudden. Uh, and yeah, as Cone mentioned, there were a lot of other games at the time. That's when, you know, MK2 was coming out. You know, MK2 was popular at that time and MK2 was huge. I mean, keep in mind, MK compared to MK2, like MK2 was really popular because it was a really refined game at that point. And, uh, you know, that's when Samurai Showdown 1 came out. All the competition started coming out. And so when Super... 94. Yeah. And when Super came out and it was such a regression, everybody was like, okay, well, Street Fighter's done. Let's go play some of these other games instead. And, you know, that's... By that point in time, the cultural phenomenon that Street Fighter was, was gone. Because even during hyper fighting, it had kind of already run its course. 
you know, mm-hmm. a lot of people. And, you know, by the time Super Street Fighter 2 came out, that was when the Capcom can't count to three jokes started showing up. You know, I was like, where's Street Fighter 3? Where's Street Fighter 3? And so, yeah, around Supers, when everybody kind of stopped playing, and I barely played it around that time as well. So. When did we get Alpha 1? Like, what year was that? I'm not sure, actually. Because I'm just trying to think, how long was Street Fighter 2's era? Basically, because I know 91 was World Warrior. Uh, Street so... Fighter Alpha, Alpha 1 comes out in 2000, according to Wikipedia. That is completely wrong. Oh, okay. Okay, so Arcade says, it says in Japan. Wait, no, what? No, that's not right. It's Street Fighter Alpha came out in 1995. Sorry, 1995. Okay. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, 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 that's completely that. wrong. Sorry, sorry, sorry. Internets, ugh. 1995, there you go. That's when that came out. So. Okay, so there was a good four years of Street Fighter II's legacy. Yeah. Uh, did ST come out in 94 or 96? Uh, Super Turbo came out beforehand, for sure. Uh, I thought, I thought Turbo ST came out after Alpha. It was 94? Yeah, it came out in 94. 94. Okay. Yeah, Super Turbo was basically... You know what Super Turbo really was? It was Capcom's, like, whoops, sorry, uh, from way back then. You know, like, what they did with, like, Season 3 and 5 of Street Fighter V. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, it's, it's... Evidence, I'm not saying, you know, raise your pitchforks, but it is evidence that, hey, companies will sometimes make a mistake with an update where the update isn't necessarily what everyone wants. Yep. It will happen. (laughs) And, uh, yeah, honestly, uh, Street Fighter, Super Street Fighter was a big mistake. And when Super Turbo came out, that was when I started going to college. So my view of the arcade scene massively warped around that time because around that time is when, you know, everything got focused to the UCLA arcade for me. And it was, you know, that's where I got a lot of my exposure from. A lot of uh, strong players from UCLA, you know, back then, like I said, like the George Nago, and that's where Roger Chung went to. Uh, one of the guys that I said was one of the four, you know, the four divas of world's finest arcade. And uh, like I said, my brother played him in his very first tournament at UCLA. And my brother got second place to Roger. So. <laughs> and wow. uh, he actually had Roger on the ropes and he lost at the very end uh, by doing tick throws, basically. He just did head roll in the throw, head roll in the throw, head roll in the throw. And I think he messed up and Roger won. And Roger was oh. like, what happened? You know, and Jeff, was, my brother Jeff was like, oh, I don't know what happened, but you know. <laughs> Uh, so, so your, but your brother was also pretty good at Street Fighter 2 then. Yeah, so me and my brother, needless to say, got into a lot of fights, a lot of arguments, uh, a lot of fisticuffs over the game. Uh, eventually, you know, after he graduated and I kept playing, I just got better at that time, you know, at that point. So uh, just because he stopped playing. And my brother, despite being so good at fighting games, and my brother is also, also a very sharp point of reference of how to approach fighting games. You know, he loves fighting games, but movies became his main hobby because he's just into films and, you know, you can't blame anyone for finding another hobby like that. But yeah, absolutely. he played Street Fighter 4. He would only play against the computer, but he had fun trying to do Dudley combos. Like, he would try to do all the crazy Dudley Link combos and everything like that. He learned plinking, but he never wanted to play online. 
he had no interest in playing online because he just wanted to have fun doing combos and playing and beating the game and seeing the story, you know, getting the endings and stuff like that. Because he that was just the game for the game, yeah. Yeah, it was just a way for him to enjoy it. So when Street Fighter V came out and didn't have the arcade mode in there, that's why I was so loud about it being a mistake. Because now you just basically killed any possible. And my brother asked me, he was like, oh, cool, Street Fighter V, should I buy the game? And I was like, no. I was like, there's nothing in this game for you. You will have nothing to do in this game. And he's like, okay. So he never bought it. He's never owned Street Fighter V. And, and you know what? I don't blame him. In fact, I, I think that's the right choice. And so when Street Fighter V came out, I was also very vocal about it. And, mm -hmm. and it's because I want to make sure because, okay, so one thing people talk about all the time is, especially on Twitter, like the FGC is like an echo chamber. We just talk within ourselves and, you know, we all just say the same thing. Mm -hmm. You know, we're all thinking about as, as an FGC, as the FGC. But I was saying back then, like, hey, we got to think about the casual audience because more casual players lead you know more people playing the game in general will eventually lead to more people you know finding out about the ftc mm -hmm, and joining mm -hmm, the ftc mm -hmm. if there is nothing for the casual player this game has already failed yeah yeah exactly and that's kind of goes into the conversation that i just had uh on the chen reaction earlier uh i do want to address a couple of things that some people in the chat mentioned uh say no to weeb says there was no internet how did we know how did capcom know everyone hated super I think it's just one of those things that you just, you get, the arcades gave you their records. Like, you could ask them, like, how what were the play count sales and everything like that. Because, like I said, when we were at UCLA and I did coin collection, when you collected the coins, you would check the diagnostics for every game and know how many people playing it. And if it wasn't succeeding, less people ordered the cabinets. You know, you just didn't sell as many of the cabinets. Uh, and Starrick says, you know, ST was at the end when the only console version was on the 3DO. And that's another thing, too. When Super Street Fighter 2 came out on the Super Nintendo, uh, EGM gave it, gave it a really bad rating. All the Street Fighter games had gotten like 9, 10, 9, 9, 9, 10, 9, 9 on EGM. And then when Super came out, it got like a 6, a 7, a 6, and a 5 or something like that. Capcom was so mad and Capcom was on their high horse at the time that they basically said EGM can never get any of their games for review anymore. They were so mad at them, and but a lot of people didn't like it because the voices all sounded like they were coming out of tin cans because remember in Street Fighter 2 World Warrior through hyperfighting, there was only one voice in the game. I'm sorry, there's two voices in the game. There was Chun-Li and everybody else going, huh, and huh, and it. You know, everyone shared the same voices and then Super finally came out and everyone had a different voice. It was the first time everybody had a different voice. And, uh, and, and we I mean, the CPS2, the new CPS2 mm -hmm. engine or uh, system, yeah. And so when Super came out on the SNES and they tried to do replicate that, you know, the sound was obviously very low quality. It sounded very tinny and it just felt like it was just the same old thing. And again, the speed dropped again. And so it got a very bad review. And so that was just, you know, an, a, more of an indication of by the time Super came out, everybody was kind of sick of it. You know, everybody was like, okay, we get it. Enough of Street Fighter. We're done with this kind of thing. So, yeah. Uh, and, 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 you know, once again, another thing to keep in mind was because Street Fighter World Warrior was so successful and was such a new thing. We had so many other copycats. We had a bunch of clone fighters. 
everything. The the, the, the the market was oversaturated. You know, even if you had a new, you know, genuine Street Fighter game, it's like, well, there's 50 billion fighters on the on the mm. market. Why do I want to play this one? Right. And for some people, Super was a step back. Mm -hmm. So like, never mind, the magic's gone. Mm -hmm. Yep. And then the next brand new Street Fighter game was Street Fighter Alpha. Wasn't even three. <laughs> Yeah. And, uh, you want to talk about dumbing games down to try to help people learn fighting games? Street Fighter Alpha 1 was the complete example of that. They did everything to make the game more approachable and easy to play. A lot of people didn't don't even realize that this has been something that fighting games have been battling since the beginning of time. Uh, I don't know if people want to hear about like all the crazy things Alpha 1 did to try to be beginner-friendly. Um... I mean, it created alpha counters. You could actually do something while blocking. Uh, and they could kill you, too. Alpha counters did a full heavy fierce, heavy punch of damage, and they could kill you. So basically, once the opponent got you down to one chunk of health, you basically couldn't beat them anymore. Because anytime you... Yeah, the, they would just hit you with an alpha counter, you'd die. Air blocking was introduced in that game. Chain combos was introduced in that game. Easy Chain mode combo. was introduced in that game. That where uh, they tried to help players play better with the easy mode, which was hilarious because easy mode only let you go up to a level one super, whereas all the other moves let you go to level three. There was auto block. If you held forward on the controller and someone attacked you, you would block automatically, but you had a limit of eight of those or something, and after you blocked enough of those, you would run out, and then you could start getting hit, but it was auto block. You did the supers by hitting either... Jab and short, stronger forward or fierce and roundhouse to do a super. And uh, the best story that came out of this was that uh, despite all those limitations, uh, auto mode Ken was actually overpowered in the game. And Mike Watson beat everybody at a tournament using uh, auto mode Ken. Please go into that. What made auto mode Ken so strong, <laughs> if you know? So Ken had the roll, which was quarter circle back plus punch. And the light roll was very fast. And so you could do chain combos in the crouch roundhouse in the roll forward, and you would be right next to opponents, and uh, you would be able to approach them and to keep attacking them and be aggressive. And as long as you were a good player, if you held forward on the controller and they attacked you first, you would, hey, guess what? You'd block, right? Because <laughs> you had an auto block. Then the other problem, too, was that Ken's Shinryuken level one was very flawed design. Okay, so level three did way more damage, but it would also spiral all the way up to the top of the screen. Pow, 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 all the way to the top of the screen. Level one would just go and just drop back down and didn't go very high up on the screen, right? The problem with it was, was that the way Street Fighter Alpha was designed was with juggle limits. So a lot of the juggle limits that we understand today were invented back in Super Turbo, went to Alpha 1. So moves just had, for example, Shinryuken could hit like maybe 15 times, uh, but because of the juggle limit of 4 or 5, if it hit you 5 times, it would just stop juggling you. It just drop? Yeah, so you go pow, 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 and then you'd spin, and then you'd land, right? But because it hit like 15 or 16 times and it didn't go very high up, it didn't actually go high enough that a crouching opponent wasn't getting hit by Ken's feet. So if you blocked it, it would go and if you mashed it, you would block like 16 hits. 
take as much damage as you would had you gotten hit by it and it hits so f late in the uppercut that he landed and was safe. So because the super activation now was only two buttons and you only build up to level one and you built meter super fast in the auto mode, he would just roll at people and do level one Shinryuken and level ones had invincibility back in uh, Street Fighter Alpha 1. So he would roll in your face, do Shinryuken, and if you touched a button, you got hit, took a chunk of damage. If you blocked it, you took the same amount of damage and he would be safe. And then he would just keep repeating that process over and over and over again till you die. You know what? This is so funny to me because, <laughs> one, first of all, I didn't know that. That is hilarious, uh, if not awful. Uh, but so uh, a game I had picked up maybe a few years ago was I picked the Sailor Moon fighting game on Super Nintendo. Mm -hmm. Or Super Famicom, sorry. And yeah, there was the same thing. There was a character who had a move. It was a fireball that if you got hit by it, immediately knocked down. It did one hit, yeah. and that was it. And it did, like, a decent chunk of damage. But if you blocked it, it did eight hits. And it did just as much damage, if right. not more, if you blocked it. Yep. So it was it's just ridiculous to me. I'm like, oh, my God, that's what they did. Yeah, so yeah. so Ken Shinryuken, level one Shinryuken, was only supposed to hit, like, four or five times if you got hit by it. Right. But it hits 16 times. It just has an active hitbox the entire time. Yeah, you're, so it, it, you're so literally what, getting hit by his toes. Like, you would just get hit, you would block the toes and go, and then he would land, and you couldn't do anything. It was kind of silly. <laughs> and, um, and, and he's invincible, and he's safe on block. Yeah, and so Watson killed everybody with that. And I remember after that happened, like I said, I was at UCLA at the time, and, uh, you know, back then was all word of mouth, and people just would come back, you know, the good players at UCLA who went to that tournament, they just came back and would be like, Dude, Watson killed everybody with easy mode Ken. And, like, all of us who didn't go were like, what the hell? How did he do that? And then, like, you started seeing people do it, and you're like, oh, my God, this is broken. <laughs> this is really stupid. You know what? I, that, that is so sorry. Slight segue, I would love to hear, like, or get, like, a list or even a documentary series of base, like, hey, here's all the fighting games over the years. And here's some of the most busted things of each of these games. Because hearing about easy mode can do that just made my day. That's hilarious. Oh my god, yeah. that's so cool to hear about. <laughs> it was cool to hear about, but it wasn't fun to fight against back then. So, and, and I think actually that tournament that Watson won that might have gotten easy mode banned from from tournaments. Actually, I believe it. I yeah, and I think you weren't allowed, because I never remember having to run into Easy Mode Ken at tournaments at that point, but I also didn't play in a lot of tournaments until Alpha 2. Alpha 2 is really kind of when I started my tournament career, uh, but yeah, Alpha 1 was also the time when uh, Vi showed up, so Vi, that's what, he'd been playing for a long time ahead of that, but that's when he burst onto the scene by beating Watson at a Golfland tournament. Uh, and I remember Watson being very salty about it. And again, you know, hating this random, you know, as he, as he called him back then, this random Mexican, even though Vi is Peruvian, <laughs> you know, uh, but, uh, then at that point, Vi started dominating and then that's when Watson and Vi kind of became friends. They were always rivals because Vi was kind of like the guy coming in to replace Watson. And I think that, you know, and then obviously their relationship through Super Arcade and Wednesday Night Fights continued the weird antagonistic friendship that they've had like their whole entire life. Yep.
Wow. Um, God, see, there's so much history. There is so much interesting dude, history in the FGC. Yeah, it's spanning <laughs> generations at this point. And it's funny because you can see in the chat someone calling him Tank Top Vi. We can't even call it what we used to call it back in the day. <laughs> like it's just it's, not. It's just not PC anymore. <laughs> I get that. I get it. And I, I understand. We're not going to mention what that was, but I can totally get. Yeah. I can totally make a guess and be like, "Yep, that was that was normal for the time." Yep. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, yep, there was definitely a different term for that uh, tank top, and uh, like I said, we can't use that, we learn, we grow, and we mature. <laughs> times change, times change. Times change, that's, yep. that's the takeaway, times change, mm-hmm. we're not going to say that it, it's, it's, it's wrong then, it was probably hilarious then, it's, it's, <laughs> and thinking back in that context, it's still hilarious, but like, it's not, it's not acceptable now. Yes, exactly, yep. and... And yeah, I mean, that's when Vice started uh, really kind of coming onto the scene and really started beating everybody. And then, like I said, by the time Alpha 2 rolled around, he was SoCal's best. And John Choi was NorCal's best. And those two had never played each other in Alpha 2. And that's when Battle by the Bay happened and led to the, the, the epic ending, you know, that uh, is really famous these days. And uh with uh, Vi busting out a Sagat who everyone thought was a crappy character, and Vi saving the, the Vi CC, the Vi custom combo tactic. Uh, Vi has told the story himself. He found it by himself, like at a pool hall or something, and was like, oh shit, this thing is super good. I'm not gonna tell anybody about this. <clears throat> and back then that worked. You know, save that, save that stuff for nationals was a very real thing. And that's where it came from. Vi kept the Vi CC until the Nationals, which was basically if you activated the custom combo and were in sweep range of your opponent, your sweep would be able to activate and come out before the opponent could actually get control of their character. So if you activate it and you saw they were standing, you could sweep them and there was nothing they could do. So this became a powerful tool in footsies and Vi would walk up Activate custom if you were standing, sweep into Tatsu, which is why starting from Alpha 3, sweeps never let you juggle. <laughs> like, this is how things change. And in Alpha 2, they did. You swept them and you would go into it. And so he, he Vi, started killing everybody in the tournament by just doing custom combo sweep into Tatsu. And all of us were like, can you block that? Is, or are we just not reacting in time? And it took us till the next day that me and my brother went to the Alpha 2 machine to test it ourselves. And we've get, we verified that no, you could not block it. But the most amazing thing about that whole VICC thing was that in t- grand finals, John Choi, who had never seen the VICC before and was getting hit by it, started doing it back to Vi in grand finals. <clears throat> He was just like, you know what? This works. Bing! And he just started doing it to Alex. And it really came down to the last game. And I think it might have been the last round where Vi actually uppercutted Choi's attempt to Vi CC him. Like, I think he buffered the motion. CC activated and he did fierce uppercut with Sagat and hit the sweep. And he won the tournament off of that. So, so I, I absolutely love that story. Because I I find it funny. I feel like it's one of those stories you tell to everybody who enters the FGC, not just because it's a a great story, but because it has a lot of significance. (laughs) It it teaches you a lesson. The lesson there was, you know, 
especially now in the modern age with, with the internet, you know, don't keep that stuff a secret mm-hmm. because if you don't let other people know and you don't like, if you decide to keep that stuff to yourself, you're like, oh, I'm just going to use it and just beat people's unfamiliarity. Mm-hmm. Then when someone eventually fights you with that, you're like, you know what? I've never had to deal with it before. <laughs> now I don't know how to counter it. Yeah. I don't know how to deal with this. Mm-hmm. It's, it's a different time. It's harder to hide stuff. And nowadays, yeah, someone, because of the internet and because of how many people play, someone else is going to find it. And if they find it, then you better know, have to know how to beat it. And it's also a great story because it shows how John Choi adapted literally on the fly and how yeah. strong he was as a player at that time. And my favorite story of that, by the way, is going into that, there were three players that everybody was talking about, was Alex Vai, John Choi, and Chris Finney from Canada, because he was a very uh, vocal member on the uh, AGSF2 boards, and uh, was very knowledgeable, and was authority on there. And when they all showed up, uh, I mean, clearly it was Vai and Choi were the best players there at the time, but John Choi always had this thing where, you know, Choi has the Choi route through tournaments, which is lose in the first round and then go through loser's bracket and win the tournament from there. That's known as the John Choi route through tournaments. John Choi is one of those players that never turned on his skill level, I think, until his back was against the wall. It was very weird because he's a chill dude. He's a very chill dude. And during that Battle by the Bay tournament, Vi looked strong. Nobody else really looked to the level of Vi, not even Choi. And uh, someone came up to me. There was another player from Canada who looked really good as well. And so someone came up to me, and this is like my favorite story. One of my favorite stories of Battle by the Bay. Someone came up to me like, so what do you think of all the players so far? This was the first time we'd gathered and been able to see all the different levels of play. And I was like, dude, that one guy from Canada and Alex Vi, holy crap, like, they are clearly the best right now. I'm not Uh particularly sold on John Choi yet, right? And I turn my head and John is just standing there looking at me. (laughs) And I was like, uh, 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 well, I I don't know, uh, what, 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 what do you think? John, uh, I mean, uh, I, I, like, dude, like, I was, like, I must have turned super bright red at that point in time. <laughs> and that was, like, my first interaction with John Choi. <laughs> this John Choi guy sounds like a scrub. I yeah. <laughs> I was like, yeah, John Choi's not that good. Turn around and John Choi's standing right there looking at me, and I was like, crap. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> uh, fortunately, over the years, you know, John and I have become good friends, so. <laughs> Yeah, man, our friendship started with him just talking smack behind my back. <laughs> I was like, oh, my God. Oh, God, that was bad. But, yeah, no, uh, then John, like I said, he just turned it on by the time it got to grand finals. You know, it was awesome that the two players that we talked about going in there as, like, these, like, oh, my God, Vi is going to kill everyone. Oh, my God, John Choi is going to kill everyone, depending on where you came from. That was the grand finals that we got. And it really, you know, that was a big resurgence for the fighting game scene. That was a time, too, where everybody was fighting whether Alpha 2 or Super Turbo was a better game as well, by the way. There was a huge divide during that time. And I remember at the time arguing that I thought Alpha 2 was a much better game than Super Turbo. You know, obviously nowadays I don't think that at all. Uh, But, you know, 
it's, it's it, that kind of rivalry existed forever. And honestly, having that kind of a grand finals really kind of revitalized a lot of things on the internet. And at that time, we had alt games SF2, so there was a good place to go and discuss it. I also credit that as the reason why Street Fighter 4 became so popular, because EVO Grand Finals ended up being Daigo versus Justin Wong, right? So that was like, that was... That was like, you couldn't have written it better to go that way, to, to revitalize the entire uh, fighting game scene, so. Wow. Man, I just, I, I love hearing about these stories, especially when you hear about a, a slight generational gap when you think about, like, oh, alpha players, ST players, mm-hmm. uh, third strike players, and, and now Street Fighter Four and Street Fighter Five. there, there is... A, a gap between those players. Yeah. <laughs> well, the craziest part is that, you know, when you do talk to a lot of the old school heads, and a lot of the newer players probably feel this way, but those people who played Third Strike, who played Alpha 2, who played Super Turbo, and played like Street Fighter 2, like hyper fighting and stuff, they all probably feel like they're the same crowd. You know, but literally they're super diverse between each other. Like I said, even to the point that there was the Super Turbo versus the Alpha 2 crowds, you know? Like, we used to have fights and argues about which game was better than the other. Uh, this is just kind of how it's always been, you know? The, the, there's always been this kind of generational difference in fighting game communities. And uh, So, I find that funny. Um, as, as someone who came in from, you know, 09, it was Street Fighter 4, um, thinking about how <clears throat> with Street Fighter 2, Street Fighter 3, and even the Alpha games, within those communities, like of those series, you'd hear people argue about, okay, so which game best represented our series? Mm-hmm. Was it ST? Was it Hyper Fighting? Mm-hmm. Uh, what, what, was it Alpha 2 or was it Alpha 3? Was it, I, I think Third Strike was just Third Strike. I don't think anyone ever argued that Second Impact. No, no, no. Third Strike. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, and it's funny because, like, depending on who you talk to, it will be different, you know. Uh, there's still a lot of people out there who live by Alpha 2, you know. And uh, so a lot of people out there who still argue that Alpha 2 is, like, one of their favorite games. I still hated it because I still hated Alpha Counters. I hated the custom combos in that game. I hated the fact that, you know, people hate Chip Death now. Like, back then, if I was Ryu and I uppercutted you out of the air and you had, like, maybe four slivers left... I would jump backwards, go custom combo, and you would have this stream of like seven Hadoukens flying across the screen, and the guy would get up, and even if they jumped, they'd land on one and die. Even if they air blocked it, they'd air block it, land in the rest of them and die. And if they stayed on the ground, they blocked all of them and died. <laughs> like you couldn't do anything; it was guaranteed at that point in time. I hated that. Like I said, I hated that the, the alpha counter still did full damage and still killed. Alpha 3, I think, was the first time they stopped killing. And, uh, yeah, and I hated the Vi CC and everything like that. But, you know, it's one of those situations where I quit CVS 2 when roll canceling came out because I thought roll canceling broke the game. Actually kind of made it better in a weird way. Same thing happened with, you know, the Vi CC. People started learning how to beat the Vi CC. People started learning how to beat the Alpha counters, you know. And, of course, it was always... The top tier characters had that. <laughs> the oh, way that you beat, like Ken's alpha counter in Street Fighter Alpha 2 was super broken. It didn't knock down, but it just had range beyond all reason that it should have had. 
Like, it, uh-huh. it, it was a standing heavy kick. It hit super far, and there was no way it should have worked. It did turn out to be minus one on a hit or minus two on hit. I don't know the exact frame data, but if you did reversal custom or reversal supers, you could actually hit Ken out of the, 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 the alpha counter on hit. But more what it came down to was that Shoto's would basically walk up to Ken and any character with an alpha counter, by the way, and just do low roundhouse, delayed uppercut. Because the alpha counter would freeze the game and go, and then they would alpha counter and attack. And so low roundhouse was cancelable for the Shoto's back then. And so if I did low roundhouse, late uppercut, if they did an alpha counter, your sweep would finish and you couldn't cancel it. But if they did alpha counter, it would freeze you on the bufferable frame, and then your uppercut would come out, and you would beat them. Option selects. <laughs> I love it. We didn't oh have we didn't have a term for it back then, but that was what it was. It was just the delayed uppercut strategy to beat alpha counters, which is why Rose was so powerful because when she alpha countered you, she just sucked you in and grabbed you and put you down next to her. You know, so you couldn't do that to her. But against a lot of the other characters, you would be able to use that method. Chun-Li could kind of do it with her fireball because the way she threw her fireball, she leaned back and threw a fireball. So you would hit Ken with the tip of your crouching medium kick. And if he alpha countered, you would actually lean back out of the way of the roundhouse. And then you would punish with the fireball. I like that. I love people finding tech like that. Yeah. And and so oh. even though I hated Vi CCs and alpha counters and all that stuff, in a way, again, all the systems came around and balanced themselves out which is why I never hated uppercut FADCs because you had invincible backdashes, which could bait out uppercuts and blow that up. You know, you could use systems to beat systems. And So, I mean, I, in my opinion, you know, you know when you have a good mechanic or a good new system mechanic, when it, add, when it really genuinely adds another depth of gameplay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like, I- you know... The hardest part about it is a lot of times we don't know how much depth it adds until we take the time to play with it. Like, roll canceling today would have been patched instantly. And, yeah. and, and, and like I said, it actually made the game kind of better in a weird way. Obviously, though, with the patch of the roll canceling, we would have also been patching the characters, so they would have been more competitive the reason why roll canceling was good in the end is because it made a lot of non-competitive characters competitive and it made it so that you could actually fight a character like sagat because <laughs> sagat used to kill ev- like 90 80 percent of the cast sagat could kill with crouching fierce punch alone and um a lot of uh that was solved by just turning your special move invincible and being uh-huh. able to beat the crouching fierce so roll canceling helped in that way Obviously, nowadays, with the patch, Sagat's Crouching Fears probably would have gotten nerfed as well, so the balance would have been better anyway through there, but again, the lesson to be learned is that a lot of things that were overpowered kind of stopped being as overpowered once people just figure out stronger things to fight it. When, when your understanding of a mechanic you know, grows, then you understand how to deal with it. Mm-hmm. Um, when... That's one thing I always want developers to think about when they're rebalancing a game. Uh, especially if there is a bug or an unintended <laughs> thing that happens. Um, is really, I want them, oh, I almost want them to be upfront about this. Of basically, hey, so this mechanic is in the game. It's pretty strong. 
do we want to dumb down the mechanic so it's no longer as powerful, mm. or do we want to just ensure that everybody has access to the mechanic equally as yeah. powerful? You know, do you want to make the mechanic weaker, or do you want to make it so that way everyone has access to the mm -hmm. strong mechanic? I mean, oh, one good lesson of that was Street Fighter V in Season 1. The jump back throw OS. I was always mad they took that out. Because, to me, that was a tech that the people came up with, and it was good to beat things, and people would have to start learning to, to, to react to people jumping back and hit them out of the air with that, you know, chase them down, or just be happy that you're pushing them towards the corner. Another one that I'm sad that they tweaked was uh, Claw in Season 1 had his jumping medium punch that hit way the heck up here, so it was, like, useless to hit grounded people, but it also pulled his hurt box up, so when standing light punches were really good as anti-airs, you remember Claws would do jump medium punch and would cause their anti-airs to whiff, and then they would land and throw them. I actually wanted to turn that into a universal mechanic. I just wanted like make Cammy's jumping medium kick and all those buttons that hit way up there, pull your hurt boxes up so it couldn't hit the guy on the ground, but it made people avoid the annoying anti-air normal button. And then mm -hmm. it created, but then if you knew they were going to do that, then you would use one of the normal buttons that was slower or wasn't designed to be an anti-air to hit them out of the air because you baited them into doing this whiff jump attack. You know, I, these are kind of things that I wish that developers would just kind of let rock or maybe turn into systems like Guilty Gear developers have done in the past with jump install and faultless defense cancel and stuff like that, you know. <laughs> I, I want to hear from developers more when they make balance changes, what their mindset was when they made oh. those changes. I know that's a huge pain in the ass. I know <laughs> that that's not something people want to go into a lot of the times. But it's really hearing like, oh, we made this change because we thought this is too strong or that's too good. Yeah. And so we want to make this change as a result. If you think, you know, that's a dumb idea, let us either know or, you know, yeah. we'll, we'll figure it out by seeing you'll play. Because I feel like a lot of times that is people's major frustrations with balance changes mm -hmm, mm -hmm. is feeling like the developer doesn't understand what the audience wants and but we as the fan base want to understand why the developer made this change yeah. we want to know we want to know why they thought that this is a good idea like we genuinely want to know why they did this and and, and honestly like besides keats you know, obviously he actually had a live patch notes reveal at the first KI World Cup, which was one of the coolest things I'd ever seen. Um, so he was actually talking about the patch changes in front of the players, which is really funny. Uh, but Okubo for Soul Calibur is probably the best at that right now. Uh, their patch notes always come out with, their, our intention was for this character to fight this way. Here's what these changes, we're trying to gear it towards that kind of thing. And... You know, so if every developer did that, by the way, then maybe we would actually get the patch notes that say, we want Lowane to suck. So, you know, <laughs> have fun. Yeah, like he's supposed to be the Dan. He's supposed to be the joke character. That's right. why he sucks. Like, oh, okay, now we understand what you're getting at. Yeah, and now I know I don't ever have to play Lowane. You know? <laughs> <laughs> it's funny because I just picked up Lowane like two, three days ago because I was like, oh, he's gimmicks the character. I love that. And then you play him, and you're like, no, actually, he's just bad, the character. 
Yeah, but I played Dan and I, I played Dan. Oh, that's Lord. right. That's I'm right. like, that's great. I get to play a character that pisses people off. You and that's are designed. I love it. Yeah, and and to be fair, Luane isn't like awful, awful. He's not like Dan. You know, well, actually, even Dan in Street Fighter Four was Dan Four was completely viable. Yeah. Uh huh. Uh huh. So, but he was troll the character. He still trolled the character, which is right up your alley anyway. So. Yeah. So, sorry, I didn't mean to shift too much in the No, no, it's okay, it's okay. Me. But it's just, that—that that is one thing I do like hearing about, is seeing, uh, especially since back then we didn't have patches of, like, here's version mm -hmm. 1, here's version 2. It was, here is the new version of Street Fighter 2. Here's <laughs> yep. the new version of Street Fighter 3. It was a version change. Yeah. Alpha 2 was essentially a patch, and Alpha 3 was essentially a patch. But because they were more grand scheme of things. It was more likely for them to introduce new mechanics and things like that. I mean, that's honest. I mean, the times are different, obviously, with esports. You don't want to change the game too drastically because you want to keep people to be able to feel like what they've learned matters, you know, because if you change it too much too often, it just feels like, well, everything I learned is gone, you know, and it's kind of painful, but... Like, for me, I would have probably put in two V-Skills in Season 3 of Street Fighter V. You know, I would have put in a new defensive mechanic by now and everything. But, you know, with what we've learned in Street Fighter IV and Street Fighter V, that's just not how it's going to work anymore. So, Yeah, it's, and, and once again, times are, times are genuinely changing. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, the, the, the way we interpret things changes the way the fan base the community the the casuals everyone sees things differently things that might have been cool back then might not be cool anymore yeah uh so we so the gaming landscape keeps changing so yeah. people developers need to adapt yeah and and honestly once you start putting that much money on the line yeah it, it gets it's different like you know you, your chances of winning $250,000 can go right down the drain if you're a player who plays, for example, uh, like let's say you're a player of Ibuki and you're really good at Ibuki and then all of a sudden they just nerf the hell out of that character and uh -huh. you don't have any control over that and you spent all this time learning that character and now your chances of potentially winning that money goes away and so... You know, or they add a complete brand new mechanic that really hurts your character in particular. You know, it's like kind of sucks. And so, you know, as much as, you know, I've, 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 I joke about invincible uppercuts and how much people get mad whenever I talk about it, I would never add it to Street Fighter V at this point because one, you know, it would change the game entirely. And two, uh, because of the esports scene, we can't afford to change games that much. You know, we just, yeah. we can't do it. And, and, and the point with that is that, you know, they patched out, you know, Invincible uh, DP so early, it was season one going mm -hmm. to season two, that it would be wrong now to change it in season five. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. It, it, it's, oh, yeah. It's just like, we, we, it's too long without it. We can't change it now. It's the way it is, especially because we don't know how much longer Street Fighter V is going to continue mm -hmm. in regards to, like, if they're going to come out with Street Fighter VI or if the Pro Tours are going to stop. Like, we don't know what the support is for Street Fighter V right now. Um, <clears throat> one thing I will say, and this is going to be my personal opinion, sorry that we're not talking so much about old school stuff at this very <laughs> it's moment. It's okay. <laughs> but <clears throat> Street Fighter IV, um, 
it had you know it had stupid stuff with like vortexes you know mm -hmm. like akuma and ibuki or like kind of cheap yon was cheap you know stuff like that but i had way more fun playing that game like semi-competitively if that made sense i played against people who were competitive but none of us were like playing like top top tiers we just like we had a very good understanding of the game right. and we just play and it was really fun i just enjoyed it even if i got my you know i, I get bodied I still really enjoyed messing around the game because the game had so much freeform. Yeah. But with Street Fighter V, now everyone is... Um, the, the game is very rigid, and it's, it's very much frame data intensive. Like, you need to know <laughs> the frame data. And so everybody has the capability of just blowing you up, which, you know, from a competitive standpoint, oh, that's great. Everybody's competitively viable, but... At the same time, I feel like it loses a lot of uh, character. Yeah. I, I mean... can't just pick up the joke character who's, <laughs> who, whose whole shtick is that, oh, they suck, but if you beat someone, you're a god. Right. It's because that doesn't exist anymore. Or they play with a very specific gimmick, and I don't really feel like Street Fighter Five does that as much. Yeah. I mean, you're, you're definitely more of the mindset that I have when it comes to fighting games, and... I mean, it's 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 tough because like whenever I argue with people about it, uh, we had Keats on the Tuesday show a while ago, and he echoes a lot of my thoughts. And everybody who listened to Keats was like, "Oh my God, this guy's a genius." He's like, he's so smart, but that's also because he's well spoken and calm and logical about it. Whenever I talk about it, I get all riled up and I get all angry, and so my arguments sound terrible. Uh, I'm too emotional about a lot of these things. But, uh, I mean, yeah, I, I like Street Fighter V more than I like Street Fighter IV, but I do understand that Street Fighter IV is a more fun game and more beginner-friendly game. And it's one of the things that I have been arguing about on Twitter all day yesterday when we all got into this big Invincible DP argument on Twitter. Uh, I, I, I got into it with a bunch of uh, people, and yeah, I, I started getting... Uh, you know, but a lot of, I was trying not to argue like, oh, this is stupid. I was like, I just don't think that this is as practical for beginners. And I think Street Fighter V does a bad job of hooking people in through the fun aspect, you know, because everything in Street Fighter V is very well balanced. Don't get me wrong. And again, I don't think anything is, I think that they've done a great job designing the game that they're out to design. I just don't think it would be a good idea to do that for Street Fighter VI because I think it would hurt the player base, to be mm -hmm. honest. So, yeah. Yeah, and and yeah, don't don't change Street Fighter V too much now. Um, once again, because it's already established what mm -hmm. kind of game mm -hmm. it is. You could really only change a fighting game. I'd I'd say in the first few months, maybe up to the first year, and then yeah. after that, that is what the game is. You yep. can only make minor adjustments from there. Yeah. And yeah, I mean, a lot of people did call Street Fighter 4 Jab Fighter 4 because it yeah. was always Jab Jab Link into something, you know, Jab Jab, jab Link Fighter into 4, something. Throw Fighter 4. Uh, I remember all of those. Yeah. And yeah, those are all things that like we find annoying. But once again, you, you found ways to play around it. And mm -hmm. I, I found that fun. Uh, not, not saying that you don't play around things in Street Fighter 5. Um, it's funny when you say beginner friendly, I feel like Street Fighter 5 in many ways is very beginner friendly. But it's also not, if that yeah. makes sense. Basically, it, it shifts its focus rather than... I feel like Street Fighter 4 might have had more of an execution barrier because yes, it had yes. uh -huh, FADCs uh -huh. and frame links and all that. Or, you know, like uh, like one frame links, three frame links. Like, it had mm -hmm. links. But Street Fighter 5, instead of being execution-based, it's knowledge-based. Yeah. You need to know the frame data. You need mm -hmm. to know when you're allowed to do this, when you're allowed to do that, what your opponent's frames are. Right. 
and and, but, and you know yeah the, the the standpoint that i come from is like i said i don't think there's anything wrong with street fighter 5 and obviously i know a ton of people who that kind of game appeals to <clears throat> you know ultra david being one of them high fight one of the guys that i talk to about a lot logan that i talk to a lot about it these guys enjoy this kind of style of play and i totally get that and i don't want to ruin the game for them but you know the the one advantage Street Fighter Four will always have to me is that I felt like there were characters of all the types in that game, that you could be you had the execution monsters in the game you had the I'm Ken I'm gonna spam DPS you know <laughs> you you had the zoners you had the the grapplers and stuff and you know trying to get it I I felt like it just had that better catered to more people a little bit better, but uh, anyways this is a topic for another time. <laughs> It is a topic for another time. I have a few more topics I want to talk about. Uh, so it is a 7.30. Okay. So it is about time. I think we close up. Sure. Um, I just wanted to basically list a few topics I do want to talk about next time just so we can prep your discussion. Oh, me. okay. Cool, cool. And that way you can always just watch the end of this and know. <laughs> yeah. So uh, we talked about Tomo here, which I, I love. I actually love to talk more about Tomo if we have more okay, stories Okay, sure. No problem. Uh, shifts, shifting from arcade to console for e Evo 2004. Oh, God, yeah. Uh -huh. And actually, there was one topic I wanted to talk about, too, because it came up on Twitter, which was the broken broken joysticks and stuff. Because one of the things I, I mentioned on Twitter, I made the comment of, where's down back? And, like, I don't think people realize how much of a real problem that actually was in arcades a long time ago. We just the lever would be like, oh, oh, my down back's broken. I can't block while I'm on the player one side or on the player two side, whatever. Yep. I guess I'm dead. Yep. My jab doesn't work. <laughs> yeah. Uh, oh, quick question, actually, just because it is on topic. Was it, it was more common for you to have bat tops. When oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh -huh. arcade, right? We all had bat tops and octagonal gates. And then Perfect 360 started becoming a thing. And so that's what we mostly used in the arcades was bat tops, concave buttons, not the convex buttons. I'm uh, familiar. Yep. The yeah, concave con buttons. Concave is the one. Concave is the one that goes in, and the convex is the one that goes out that we see nowadays. Uh, that's what we have on all of our uh, joysticks now. We used to have the convex, but the concave buttons that went down inward. And yeah, we all played on a bat top stick on an octagonal or a perfect 360 gate. So. so knowing that, so that was a, that was a U.S. standard, or mm -hmm. uh, at least a North American standard, from what I recall, because I know Asia did all you know uh, ball tops yeah. and mm -hmm. and con uh, vex buttons. But was that change hard for you at all once that became the overall standard when people started selling sticks? <laughs> Some of the first joysticks that I ever bought were Hori sticks. This was before Mad Cats did the TEs. And uh, that was a switch from octagonal to square gate. It's one of the hardest things I've ever had to do was relearn how to use the joystick. Honestly, it was so hard and I hated it. I, it didn't make sense. I was like, I don't want like this, Urgh! which is why I feel like I can actually teach people to go from one to the other because I remember the things I learned going from one to the other. You know, sometimes, like a lot of people don't even realize, too, that, you know, because we're all standardized with JLFs and all these things like that, that the joysticks all generally feel the same. If you borrow somebody else's stick, it kind of feels the same. 
Back in the day, when you went to an arcade, sometimes the joystick would basically be like, you just move it anywhere. And sometimes I swear you needed to be a bodybuilder to even do a quarter circle forward. Some of those springs were so tight that you're just Stiff like, as hell. And so different people had different preferences. And so when we were at Evo and Justin, for example, would be playing MVC2 on a mastic, he would have it, you know, tightened in a certain level that everybody wanted to use his joystick and so tournaments would always get delayed because everybody was sharing a single joystick like justin go play your match i can't this guy's using my joystick <laughs> like that was actually a problem back in the day because people and nobody could get access to joysticks i mean joysticks the amount of difference between the gates and perfect 360s and the tightness of the levers and you know the give between the downs down backs and down like the micro switches would be worn out so that if i held it down back like this and something in my hand twitched and i moved my hand this far that would stop blocking like you know it, it was ridiculous it was crazy it was so hard but like I said, once I started finding out what the advantage of the, uh, the Japanese sticks were, you know, you never had to wonder where down back was thanks to the square gates. And uh, if you actually see like with perfect 360s or even the, the older bat top joysticks, the amount of distance you need to move the joystick to trigger the direction is so much smaller in Japanese sticks. In other words, I just have to go click, you know, and that's it. I'm, I'm hitting down. Whereas on of your wrist and that was it as opposed to your entire arm. Yeah, so doing quarter circle forward times two into supers was like like that. You would just move it like this. Whereas on American sticks you had to be like you know you, you had to move your entire wrist over as yeah. opposed to doing that. Exactly. And so I I have become aware of the quality of uh Japanese joysticks and I am now officially a convert. <laughs> <laughs> You know, I, I, I do love talking about, uh, sorry, I, I don't mean to go too much in overtime. Okay, just, I okay. do love that conversation of basically people who want to go from pad to stick or even going from one standard of stick to the other. <laughs> it's, it's really fun because it's really good to learn, uh, to hear about that learning process, God. especially if you're someone who is thinking about making that switch. Right. Like, oh, what are the changes and, mm -hmm. and how do I get into it? I remember when I first played on an arcade stick, uh, I got a I got a uh, a TE and I hated the square gate and mm -hmm. I was like I need to get an oct gate I need to get an octo gate like this is not gonna work and then I got used to it and so I I laugh because every single time I hear about someone who just got their arcade sick it's always the same complaint yep. of I need to get an octo gate yep. I need to get an yep. octo gate and I tell everybody play on it for six months yeah. and you'll get used to it. Trust me, you do not need an octo gate. If you are if you are willing to make that investment and do whatever to change it, go for it. But you will learn. You will learn. What? Well, just as kind of a side version of this story here, just to give an idea of how much sometimes have changed. Uh, when Street Fighter Four first came out and everybody was playing it, we actually pulled together for an Xbox 360 at my work, and we would all take breaks and go play some Street Fighter in some of the conference rooms, right? And uh, one of my younger coworkers, you know, they bought a joystick and they bought a TE. And so they're sitting there playing on a TE and the way that they would throw a fireball is they would like grab the stick like this and like 
flick it and like let go of the joystick and like hit the button like they would be like trying to fling the joystick to the side and stuff and like their hand would like come all the way off and I was like you don't have to do that you can keep your hand close and blah 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 he's like okay it's just really weird and I was like well how did you used to use like joysticks in the arcade when you went to the arcade and he was like I have never used a joystick in the arcade and I was like Jesus <laughs> he's like this is the first time I've ever used a joystick and I was like oh my god I know I'm younger but holy fuck <laughs> Oh my god. <laughs> exactly. Oh man. Well, okay, and then the final thing I was just going to talk about is, or the final topic for next time, just because you mentioned, I'm curious, was what changed your mind going from, oh, AT, uh, Alpha 2 is the best to ST is the best? Like, what, be, what changed oh, okay. you your favorite? <laughs> Fair well, enough. What, what changed your mindset on that? And I'm, I'm curious to know about that. Okay, okay. <laughs> Well, that's about it from me for points I want to talk about next time. Because uh, I know we're gonna, what's going to happen is we're going to talk about one point and we're going to keep making like 20 tangents until we get to the <laughs> yeah, next point. So that's all I'm going to prepare for next week. Yeah. Uh, one thing I'll try to do, uh, I'll try to see if I can find that flyer. I have a feeling it's in my parents' house, so I don't think I'm going to be getting it anytime soon thanks to the quarantine stuff. But, you know, at some point in time, I'll try to see if I can nab it, if I can still find it because it would be awesome if i can <laughs> no absolutely once again like i i i genuinely think that is you know that's a relic that <laughs> that belongs in a museum like that's an important part of history if you still happen to have it uh i mean it, it's crazy to think you would have something like that just because like i'd imagine for many people it's like oh it's just some random flyer yeah and who would keep it for like what over 20 years yeah and like i said that's that's just how much street fighter meant to me once i had discovered it it, it basically changed my life right so uh, I'd probably be a lot happier right now if it wasn't for... No, I'm kidding. <laughs> I'm kidding. Anyway. <laughs> this, that was Capcom's plan all Salt. Salt. Anyways, um, yeah, but if you guys are watching this on YouTube and you appreciate this, you know, like I said, let me know in the comments below some more questions. Obviously, you saw Corey, you know, saw some of the questions and comments uh, from the previous episodes. Anything that you want him to, t to, to ask me about, Put those in the comments below as well. We if do you, read them. Yeah, if you guys are watching this on stream or anything like that uh, and enjoy this content and appreciate all this stuff, I have the notifications here. I don't know if people have been subscribing or anything like that during the course of this episode. I can check this. But if you do enjoy this content and, and you do want to uh, you know support and everything like that, uh, would appreciate it very much uh, like, for some follow, subs. Subscribe. Like, follow, subscribe, donations, all that stuff like that. Would appreciate it very, very much. But uh, thanks, guys, for watching. Thanks, guys, for tuning in. And again, thank you, Corey, for, for joining for this all the time. No, no, thank you. Like, this is, I honestly look forward to this all the time because it's a really fun conversation to have. Um, I, I, I feel like I didn't know about, like, dude, the, the easy mode, Ken, I love that. I am so glad I got to learn about that today. That was so cool. Um, I, 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 I went through all the Street Fighter 2 games and did a lot of crazy stuff on stream. I still have those videos. I've never put them up on YouTube because I wanted to find a way to edit them, and I've just been too lazy to do that. But I still do plan to go through the alpha ones at one point in time. And when I do get to alpha, I'll definitely show off some of that stupid uh, Ken stuff. <laughs> I would love to. Oh, my God. Yeah. So, no, thank you again for having me. You know, uh, if anyone, uh, please like, follow, subscribe to James Chan Donations. 
you can find me on Twitter. Uh, if you guys ever want to ask me questions directly, my DMs are open. You can follow me there. Uh, I generally just uh, make a lot of stupid fighting game related jokes, but I also <laughs> love fight. I I love history, specifically gaming history, especially FGC history. Yeah. It's it's so much fun to learn about. <laughs> awesome. Well, thank you guys for tuning in, and uh, tune in next week for hopefully the next episode of OK Sonic Boomer. And uh, take care, guys, out there. Peace out. Peace out. Bye-bye. Sonic Boom!